Now, having just met you, I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. No, of course not. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. So, Parth, what have you been eating? Hello, Trent. We have a podcast. I'll say it. Yeah. Oh, hot take. Uh, before I answer your question, can I ask you something? Sure. Moments before we started actually talking, did you or did you not sing the entirety of the Family Guy intro? What led to this is that Parth said, Hey, Peter, in his Joe Swanson voice. Hey, Peter. Yeah, kind of exactly like that. that. Trent loved that. Uh, yeah, it really he lost his fucking mind. It caught me that. by surprise. And then there was a sort of silence after that. And I was trying to buy some time before we started recording so I could delete more files so I can have more audio recording space. And so I just sang the Family Guy intro music really slow until I got about halfway through and then I didn't know the words anymore. To answer your question, Trent, I made myself a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Ooh, so which of the, I was going to say which of the two ingredients do you prefer, but I'd say there's an essential third ingredient, the bread. So which element is your personal favorite? I'm going to say the jelly. Oh. I I had a phase where I really liked the peanut butter, and I would would just wait, 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 wait. Crunchy? Smooth? I, I have smooth. Yeah, I don't know if that's a hot take. No, 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 me also. And Parth, um, now that I have you on the record, tell me the definition, the the book definition differences between a jelly, a jam, and a preserve. Jam has like shit in it, right? Like it has the fruit, right? Yeah, no, not fecal matter. I would say like no. larger bits of the fruit in which is being crushed. All right, yes, that's a good. Start. That's what I meant. Continue. Um, whereas jelly doesn't. And preserve, I don't know, it has no preservatives? I don't, I don't know. Someone explained this to me the other day. I think preserved is just like the least mashed of them all. It's like, as you put it, the most amount of shit and the least amount of crushed up liquidy-esque. Interesting. Oh, I forgot, I forgot to tell you the last ingredient. Well, not ingredient, but the dessert to my lunch, if you will. Yeah. I had, I had a little Baby Bell cheese. Ooh. Do you like those? It, like with the I red do. packaging and you... It, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you play around with all that little wax. But do you just t- roll it up into a big ball? I don't know how much more playing there is to do. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I threw it away pretty much instantly. But as a if child... You're, if you're keeping them, that would be an issue. Yeah, but as a child, I loved, you know, making little, little clay things out of them. You know, like little models. But then your artistic uh, inner spirit died and... You, uh, being... I've been adulting recently, and, uh, that's when I realized I don't play with Baby Bell cheese. Yeah, unpaid, unpaid internships are so much more fulfilling than, like, expressing your creative side. It's funny, because I have several unpaid internships, and Trent is getting paid for his. Nah, it's okay. Um, uh, well, I have less cheese. Little to no cheese. That's oh, see, true. I that's didn't true. grow up with Baby Bell cheeses. I grew up with cheese sticks. I also had cheese sticks. Cheese sticks definitely have more cheese to them there's more cheese i mean the baby bell is very dense and it's a very rich cheese yeah and the cheese stick is like kind of i don't know uh mediocre cheese but there's a 
medium amount of it. Yeah, I'd agree. Well, all this all this cheese talk has me has me wondering what you've been eating, Trent. Well, you know, I woke up at eleven thirty, like a normal prime time, like a normal member of society, and I was like, "Let's get some coffee up in here." No creamer, so then that was canceled. I said, "I right, let's get a smoothie up in here." No bananas, so that plan was aborted. And then just on my way down here, people were being too chatty upstairs, so I had to go downstairs. Grabbed a clementine on my way down. Uh, the peel looked appetizing. Or it looked promising, I should say. And then I got to the middle, and um, Perth, let me give you a visual reference. It's dry as a bone. Um, mm. I've known. Yum, yum. So I'm running on empty, and it's 1 p.m. I'm just ready to take on the obstacles of the day. We can always use we can always use the YouTube to MP3 converter as as our to, as our savior, right in between this little awkward, terrible silent gap we can fill it with what no just a illegal copyrighted clip that we don't have legal permission to use trent uh you can't reveal trade secrets cut to the intro Welcome back, baby. Welcome back, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah. To Parth told, Parth told me off camera before that whenever he's like doesn't know what to say, he his he just he has an impression and it like digresses into an Austin Powers thing. And look, here it is. Yeah, baby. Yeah. But you know, like I like to say, shagadelic. Very groovy, baby. Yeah. That's got mojo. Parth, you a big Austin Powers two and three guy? You I like him. Oh, wow. Austin Tom Powers 3? It's not a good movie. Austin Powers 3 has Tom Cruise in it, which makes it... I, 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 all I knew is it had Beyonce Knowles. It does. I did, what role does Tom Cruise play? He, as a joke, plays Tom Cruise as Austin Powers. Oh, the it's the open. beginning. I, yeah. I, I actually like that. Yeah, so do I. I think it's funny. Anyways, uh, as I was saying... Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film, and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about the picture. Uh, this week we talked with casting director Debbie McWilliams for our film for today, Casino Royale. Trent, remind me, we didn't hate this woman, right? We It was the opposite? Yeah, I, I, I think we'd be overstepping our bounds if we said we like loved her in like a romantic way. But like as a person, as an interviewee, we really liked her and enjoyed her company. Yeah, she was very gracious with her time. She's worked on so many of the Bond films. She's casted so many different James Bonds. Yeah, that she's worked on the last, including as of yet unreleased No Time to Die. She's cast 14 Bond pictures. Wait, Parth, how many Bond pictures have you worked on? None. Okay, so but I I've guess... worked on a lot of movies with Martin Scorsese, so it evens out. So Debbie McWilliams isn't... She's, like, infinitely better than you, at least in this time, until your career really takes off and you become locally known as Steven Spielberg 2. As of right now, Debbie McWilliams is better than me. But the night is young. <laughs> the, the night is young. The night is darkest just before the dawn, Trent. Yeah, you could drop an inspiring 90-second short film and then 
you know, uh, Marty's office catches wind of it. And then just like that, you're directing Taxi Driver to Electric Boogaloo, you know? I'm the taxi driver. Yep. That's a line from the movie Taxi Driver. Anyways, uh, Debbie McWilliams, awesome, awesome lady. She uh, talks about working with the Bond pictures, about the whole process of casting something like that, about how her opinions on the casting industry as a whole, her efforts to try to get, you know, try to get some Academy Awards thrown their way, which uh, if anybody deserves it, it is, as we say in the interview, her. Yes. But, yeah, Trent, anything you want to say before we cut to it? Uh, No, it was freaking dope. Please stay tuned for the whole thing. Or at least, like, 80% of it. Yeah, Um, and Parth and I will reveal some top trade secrets at the end of what's to come. So if you want to stay, if you want to stick around, you can hear those. And I, I know one you're probably thinking, oh, Trent, I can just skip to the end. All right. Ah, that's enough of that, Trent. All right, yeah, okay, goodbye. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Debbie McWilliams. She's the casting director that's worked on such movies as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, An American Werewolf in London, Henry V, and our film for today, Martin Campbell's Casino Royale. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So just to start off, uh, what would you say your relationship with film was at a young age? Um, well, how I started watching films, you mean? Yeah, like were you, were you a big movie watcher? Were you oh, a yeah. fan? And From the word go, the, I think the very first film my mum ever took me to was Lady and the Tramp. And I was about five and that was it. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. kept going every Saturday I went to the cinema. And... Uh... So what was your introduction? What was your uh, your earliest involvement or th- thoughts about going into the casting industry? Well, growing up, I'd never even heard of it, and I certainly knew nothing about it. Um, but I'd always had a great fascination for film and television and theatre and felt very drawn towards it and kind of had already decided that that's where I wanted to go for to find a job. Um, But I went to university, first of all, and studied English and American literature, which actually set me off on quite a good path because I read lots and lots and lots of plays. And and also I belonged to the film society there. And so I got to see many extraordinary foreign films that I would never have seen otherwise. And so this kind of strengthened and developed my interest in film. The very first job that I got which was quite a, a kind of fateful moment for me, I suppose, was I got a job working at the Royal Court Theatre in London, which is a very famous um, place for new young playwrights. Quite how I got the job, I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, I, that's where I started off. And in fact, that it was like kind of one thing led to another to another. And it was just the minute I sat in the office with this woman doing the job, I wanted her job. And so it, you know, the ambition was born. And I had somehow acquired an extraordinary facility for remembering who actors were. And it was a sort of family joke that um, when anybody appeared on the TV or something, everybody would go, so Debs, who's that? And I go, well, they're so-and-so and so-and-so, and they've been in this and they've been in that. And (laughs) I just um, Hmm. 
had a kind of um, natural talent for it, I suppose, without even knowing that there was a job where I could use this. So uh, jumping forward to our main topic of the day, how did you get involved with the James Bond franchise? Because you've been involved with it for quite a while. Yeah, well, that was a stroke of luck as well. Um, How I got into films was through a wonderful casting director called Mary Selway, who I'd got to know when I was working at the theatre because she came in to do a couple of plays and we got on very well. And several years after my stint at the Royal Court, we bumped into each other again and um, somebody had fallen ill in the production office of the film she was working on. So I um, filled the gap for a few weeks and then she asked me if I would go and work with her. So that was my very first, so the very first film I ever worked on was called Agatha with Vanessa Redgrave and Timothy Dalton about the writer Agatha Christie. And um, we had an office at Twickenham Film Studios which just happened to be beside the director, Richard Lester. And so, you know, we were kind of office neighbours and got on very well together. And he asked me to cast Superman 2 because Mary had said that she wouldn't do it because of various um, altercations she'd had with the producers on Superman 1. So that was Mm -hmm. how I got into working with him and Somebody who was working on that went on to work on For Your Eyes Only, and he um, knew that they were looking for a casting director and put my name forward. And again, it was just an extraordinary stroke of fate, really. I mean, I was very young, considering I wasn't even 30, I don't think. So to actually work on the first major film like that was quite something. But I was sort of never daunted by it. I wasn't kind of overly impressed by any of it somehow I just Mm -hmm. well it's a job and I'll get on with it and uh, and they were such a fantastic company to work for and still are and gave me such kind of free reign to um, you know explore all sorts of different avenues and uh, and so you know a, a great team was forged I suppose and so I've gone on with them ever since. So more broadly on like all the major motion pictures you've worked on, what's the casting process like? Like how long does it take? How do you go about contacting people and and I get essentially deciding who who you who your plan A through C would be or whatever it may be? The process is pretty similar, whatever the film is, but who you end up with kind of depends very much on the budget and the location and the time you've got to do it in. I mean most lower budget independent films don't have very long and so you may be only working on something for 10 weeks and which you know you have to work jolly fast and get everybody assembled and uh, and on something like bond it's a much longer process because it's a much bigger film and it's a, usually a much bigger cast but you know the way i go about it is pretty much the same you know i read the script first of all imagine who i think could possibly play the parts and start making lists. And then if I don't get any inspiration, I'll start looking around and, um, you know, kind of doing some research. And then all approaches are made via the agent. And so, again, Mm. depending on what the script is and how confidential the material is, you might be allowed to send the whole script. You might not be allowed to send any script at all. So you have to develop a very good relationship with agents that they will trust you and um, and that you will trust them indeed. So 
It's uh, it's very much a kind of um, team effort between the kind of producers, the casting director, and the agents to get everything to work smoothly. Because as well as actually finding the actors for each and every role, I pretty much, well, not the very, very top stars, but pretty much everybody else beneath that, I have to do the negotiations for their contracts. So that's quite a task as well. But I think that, that is only probably in America and in the UK do we do that. Most of the European casting directors don't do the negotiations at all. But I have to say I much prefer to because it means you have a, a much stronger hold on everything and you know how things are going. Because if negotiations break down, you have to be very aware of that and be able to fill the gap as soon as possible or somehow, you know, manage to cajole everybody into agreeing. So it's it's very much for me part of the job. Yeah. So um, speaking on the confidentiality aspect of it, have there been any like crazy restrictions placed upon you because they have to keep things secret? Well, um, on Bond films, for instance, we never send the script out ever. And the mm. one and only time we ever did actually was on Casino Royale because there'd been oh. a break between films and there'd been a, there's always a sort of slight stigma about the leading ladies being called Bond girls. Any serious actor mm. doesn't want to be thought of as a Bond girl because they associate that much more with the sort of bikini-clad girls who've appeared in the, the past who, you know, have all been worthy people to be in them. But I think as the years have gone by, the roles have become much more serious and much more, um, you know, demanding of an actress. So anyway, it, we were finding it difficult and I persuaded the producers to allow me to send the script to a few hand-picked people and obviously they were watermarked before they were sent out which means the person who you send it to has their name printed on every single page well within minutes <laughs> the script appeared on the internet and so I was um, mortified of course but at least we knew who did mm. it and also the fact that the book was known. They'd already made a film of Casino Royale. It wasn't like it was a very secret story or anything. That's the only time, and it's never happened again, and we've never sent it out again. And even when we're auditioning for each part in the current film, we never use a scene from the current film for the audition. We always use a scene from an old film. Mm -hmm. So that's how we keep it very sort of under wraps. And I think actually not all that many people apart from the heads of department get the full script in any case so can you speak on the auditioning process a little bit like how extensive is it and how and by and large how involved is the director if at all well historically things have changed very much the director used to be involved very closely with it but since films have become so much more technical and such unwieldy beasts the director tends not to become that involved at an early stage they may you know say who their preferences are and they will obviously be taken into account but as a casting director I like to be able to introduce a director to new actors and new faces and more perhaps more interesting ideas um, because quite often they tend to go for the safe option so um, what we will normally do is 
myself and whoever's working with me, we will tape people. Otherwise, we will have them in the room with a camera and they will have been sent some um, pages beforehand and expected to learn them. And we will get an actor to come along and read the lines in with them. And so I'm able to then sort of direct them, if you like, in their audition. And if I don't feel that they're doing it as well as they could, then we give them time. And they're always, you know, actors are always anxious on these occasions. So you have to kind of put them at their ease. And very often, you know, we'll do two or three takes. And it's usually the second one that's the best one. And then we will only ever upload the best ones. And sometimes if we don't feel somebody is right once we've even met them, then we won't upload it at all. We'll just show the director the very best choices that we feel we have. And you know, each director will respond differently to that. So, for instance, Sam Mendes would watch all the tapes that we've done and then maybe only select two people who he would then meet face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And he may um, get them to do a scene or he may not. It would just depend... Um, on you know how he felt at the time or how you know the status of the actor or you know whatever um, but you know sometimes we've done fully blown screen tests with people um, for instance Ava Green on Casino Royale did two screen tests um, so it, it it you know each job is different in its own way and you treat each one sort of slightly differently depending on on the director yeah, so spe- speaking on the director, uh, Martin Campbell directed his sec. He revamped Bond for a second mm-hmm. time with this movie, and we were wondering was uh, what the differences were in uh, casting Pierce Brosnan in Goldeneye versus casting uh, Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. What the different parameters were for that? Hmm. Well, it's always a difficult process, and it's very hard to get everyone on side and everyone to agree. Um, it usually boils down to, well, this is the person and you have to, it's very hard to explain, but until the person is in the suit on the set, very often Mm -hmm. you don't, you can't see that that's what they are going to be able to do. But it's a bit like, you know, Superman putting on his suit. As soon as he puts it on, he becomes Superman. Well, it pretty much happens the same way with James Bond, to be perfectly honest with you. Once they're on the set and in character, the actors really rise to the occasion. Particularly in this, uh, in the case of Daniel Craig, he was not a popular choice, and it was reported constantly in the press how the press all thought he was a terrible choice. And he, I think, found that the challenge he had to overcome. So he absolutely worked his socks off and. I think everyone would agree that that was, you know, he was a brilliant choice and he worked extremely well and has, um, you know, become a lot of people's favourites. And uh, so, but it's never easy is all I can say. Uh, Would it be considered a regular uh, occurrence for someone to come in and read for one part and you're like, you are not a fit for that, but you clearly have chops and then you recommend them for another part? Yeah, (laughs) quite often actually. Um, because it's sort of not until you see the person in the room and hear them say the dialogue that you kind of get the flavour of them. I mean, I tend to cast a lot from people I've seen in the theatre, particularly on the James Bond films. That's not the case. It's people I've seen 
in you know foreign language films or who I've just met um you know when I've been doing the audition process so um but yes it, there have been occasions when people have been met for one part and ended up doing something else uh so I, I wanted to ask about casting Judy Dench or Dame Judy Dench as M uh obviously that happened in GoldenEye but you decided to keep her on through this next iteration and mm. If you have anything on how that decision was made and just how she got into the role. It was sort of a reflection of real life, in actual fact, because the head of MI5 was a woman. And so, you know, both Barbara Broccoli and I just made the argument that we felt it should be a woman. And so Barbara said, well, what about Judy Dench? And I went, oh, she'll never do it. Um, you know, she's mm-hmm. such a serious theatre actress. Anyway, we contacted her and she came in and met everybody. And the extraordinary coincidence was that when she had been um, a young actress or in fact a student, I think, she had lodged in Bernard Lee's house, who had played Mm -hmm. in the early films. And so she had a great affection both for him and the role. And so she was delighted to play the part. I was wondering if there's several casting directors working in coordination and do you or you all continue working uh, even once filming has started? Well, I certainly do. Um, And again, it very much depends on where we are in the world. I mean, I've engaged the help of casting directors all over the place. And sometimes, you know, if we're filming on location and so we're casting you know, very much um, prior to the actual filming, then yes, we would, um, but not necessarily always. And sometimes I don't, you know, if I'm in a country where there aren't any casting directors, I'll just get on with it on my own. But, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, that's part of the whole experience that I've enjoyed is meeting casting directors from all these different countries and and, you know, seeing their view of things and, they obviously can introduce me to people that I would never have met otherwise. So it's been a very, um, you know, good collaboration. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, over time, how has the casting industry changed in terms of the work you have to put into it and the processes that go into it since you started out? And how the internet has changed that? Well, it's changed dramatically and for my money, not for the better, really. Um mm-hmm. How can I explain this politely? Um, (laughs) It's become, because films are so expensive to make, it's become a very much more of a commercial consideration who will be cast. And um, so producers and studios will always want to cast a namey person, even if they're not really right. And... I find that extremely frustrating. And, you know, I think if I was starting out now, I would be very frustrated because the only place it seems that people will take the risk to cast lesser known actors is on the TV. But the minute somebody pokes their head up over the parapet, they are completely snatched up and you may never get hold of them again because, you know, for instance, like Reggae Jean Page, who... Um, was in um, Bridgerton, 
was not a particularly known actor in the UK, but now, you know, he's been whisked off to star in films left, right and centre. So it's kind of crazy that they have to have the approbation of somebody else, particularly on TV, for them to have the um, confidence to cast them in a leading part in a film. And that's, for me, Mm -hmm. has been the biggest change. Um, I mean, I am still given very much um, carte blanche on who we will cast in Bond, but even there, it has become much more of a consideration, the kind of commercial value of particular people. And uh, it's a much harder job to winkle in unknown actors than it used to be. And also now, particularly in the last 18 months, all auditions have had to be either self-tapes or Zoom, so you're just not in the room with the person at all, which, um, you know, I miss very much not kind of seeing the whites of their eyes or feeling their pulse, as it were. So it's a very different job, I think. Yeah, so uh, ha- have you recently been in a place where you've been able to cast an unknown or anything? or and And if so, like, is that process any different or is it just pretty much the same thing? Well, in fact, having said all that, I am working on a film at the moment where we're about to cast a whole heap of unknowns, which is very gratifying, but it doesn't happen very often. And uh, it, um, you know, obviously throughout my career, and particularly in the early days, I cast all number of so-called unknowns, you know, like Danny Lewis and Gary Oldman and, um, you know, loads and loads of actors who, you know, since Mads Mikkelsen wasn't known at all. He was known in Denmark, but he wasn't known anywhere outside his own country really so that you know gives me great pleasure to be able to bring you know people like that who i consider to be extremely talented to the attention of the you know cinema going world and uh so yes i mean it can happen but it's not happening as often but it's in tv where you get more of a chance are you responsible for casting every person with a speaking role Yes. And extras uh, are just, you know, there's no, there's less criteria. Well, sometimes we get involved with um, extras. Um, It depends how much interaction they have. If it's a scene with, you know, the lead in the film, then maybe we will. It, It kind of depends. And particularly on Quantum of Solace, for instance, we were filming in pretty far flung places where it was hard. You know, we were replacing one country for another. So when we were in Chile, we were meant to be in Bolivia, and the people in Chile don't look anything like the people in Bolivia. So, mm. you know, we had to do some very specialised casting for that. And, uh, and you know, there have been other occasions on, you know, in different locations that are meant to be somewhere else. That's particularly where, um, you know, it comes into play. But for the most part, for the the larger part of the, the kind of crowds, shall we say, I don't get involved in. But for instance, say Inspector, for instance, that all the people round that table of the big meeting um, when Christoph Waltz first comes in, pretty much every single person there was cast. And for instance, all the people around the card table in Casino Royale, they were all completely handpicked. And uh and, you know, and we're all very, very good actors. And, um, you know, I think it makes all the difference. You just mentioned Mads Mikkelsen as mm-hmm. uh, Le Chiffre in, the, in Casino Royale. And I was wondering uh, what, what was the process of casting him? Because uh, he was, I would say, like a very inspired choice. 
Well, he was very much a last-minute choice. <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind <laughs> saying that. Um, because by the very nature of his name, Le Pifre is meant to be French. And so we had been looking at French actors and indeed had got a very long way down the road with one particular French actor. But there were certain members of the hierarchy of the production, without naming any names, who found his accent far too difficult to understand. And although we put him with a coach and we screen tested him again, they still said, no, it doesn't work for us. So I always have to be ready with a substitute. And so I had, you know, I had a whole book of people who I'd been looking at. And I had seen Mads Mikkelsen in two or three films and was quite fascinated by him because he can appear to be so different from one film to another. In one film, he played a very sympathetic, though adulterous heart surgeon. And in the next film, I saw him in Pusher. He plays this sort of shaven head drug addict, drug pusher. And it just seemed such an extraordinary leap to me. Anyway, we were based in Prague for Casino Royale. And I happened to find out that he was shooting there. So I managed to locate him and got him in to meet and, um, you know, gave him a kind of chat about the whole process. And as I say, we were pretty far down the line and uh, and I introduced him to Barbara Broccoli and she just said, right, get him into costume, get him into makeup and we'll bring him on the set. <laughs> that's what we did. And he walked on and Martin Campbell went, oh, hi, um, you must be Le Chiffre. So <laughs> that was it. That was, uh, that was his meeting with Martin Campbell. He was ready to go. So um, that was that. So, uh, being you've worked on the past 10 or so James Bond films, uh, obviously in the film world, if you're nice and competent, it can often lead to your next job. But is it is it more complicated than that? Or is it like the same people are involved and, and, you, and you got in good with them? I've been a casting director, I hate to tell you, for... Mm, well, I've been working in casting for nearly 50 years and been working with the Bond um, franchise for 40 years. And I've worked on 14 films, in fact, in that time. So obviously there are many other films in between time. But in the same way that some actors get a bit typecast, some casting directors do as well. And I feel that people tend to approach me for the kind of action-adventure stuff, which isn't really where my interest lies. And also there's lots of television I would love to do, but I never get asked to do television. And uh, because people think, oh, gosh, you know, she only does big-budget films, which is far from the case we do lots and lots of low budget films as well so it's you know people kind of get to know who you are and you know either like your taste or they you know somebody recommends you it's it's purely by reputation and word of mouth i would say oh well can i just um, plug one thing which i'm very proud oh, of please. yes on casino royale at the very beginning of the pre-production Somebody said to me, it's never going to work. No one ever gets card games right in movies, particularly mm -hmm. poker. So I went, right, okay, and took the challenge. And so I started going to different casinos to find out how the whole thing worked because there was a lot of technical stuff in the film to do with playing poker. I was determined that everybody would 
look like they knew exactly what they were doing. And so as people were cast, and we were all stuck out in Prague anyway, I found a little room off somewhere or another. I got them to decorate it and put a few tables and chairs and sofas and things in there. And I made everybody learn how to play poker properly. And everybody became obsessed with it in the end. It was extraordinary. We'd all be playing in the corridor at lunchtime. And, uh, and you know, when we were in the Bahamas, I went to the casinos there to find people who really could play poker. And I think that that worked extremely well, that it really did look authentic. And so I feel very proud of that. I feel it was one of my greatest achievements in the film. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Moving away from the Bond franchise a little bit, one of the movies that you've worked on that me and my whole family is a very big fan of is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, yeah. which was directed by Frank Oz. Mm. And if if there's anything you could give about that, because um, Steve Martin and Michael Caine and, you know, a yeah. bunch of great actors in that. Well, I must say, I, you know, I didn't have anything to do with casting them, but um, mm-hmm. I had worked with... Um, Jim Henson, and that was what led me on to working with Frank Oz. And to be perfectly honest with you, it's such a long time ago. I mean, I I can't, without kind of looking back at the cast, it's, I can't remember who was in it. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So it all I can remember is it was fun, and I got on very well with Frank Oz, um, as indeed I had with Jim Henson as well. They were really nice, good people to work for. So I was wondering about your time on, uh, this is uh, early in your, this is an early credit, but uh, An American Werewolf in London. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I was very curious about that, if, if you could speak on it at all. John Landis is quite a character, I have to say. Again, he gave me very free reign. And, uh, you know, the two boys were already cast. And so I wasn't involved in that, but everybody else I was. And we cast... You know, I don't know who you, if you know who Rick Mayle is, but he became a very, very well-known English comedian, sadly dead now. But he played a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the guy who walked into the the pub in the middle of Dartmoor and everybody stops. And uh, um, so that was fun. And uh, I cast the, the son of a friend of mine to be the little boy in the zoo. And it was just, it was a, it was a very happy time. And... Uh, there were one or two quite funny moments where I, I um, sent the script to one particularly well-known English actor to play the police detective who wrote me a personal letter in pen and ink telling me that he'd never been so insulted in his life. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so some people either got it and some people didn't. And I have to say it was a much bigger success than I ever imagined it would be. So, uh, no, but it was good. I liked it. And the, the sort of last movie I think we want to touch on uh, just before we ask you our big final question was you've worked on Henry V with mm. Kenneth Branagh and uh, Shakespeare's got to be interesting to cast for. So The interesting part about all of that was that Kenneth Branagh had never directed a film before. And so mm. we assembled the cast without knowing that the film was actually ever going to get made. And it wasn't until the very, very last moment that everything fell into place. The budget was there. And so I had to kind of pre-do everybody's deals and contracts. And it was really, honestly, only like two or three days before the whole thing was meant to kick off. He rang me and said, right, send them all out. Send the contracts out. 
And so we did that and everybody was booked and they literally started the very next week. So it was, you know, it was a bit kind of nerve wracking, I have to say. But um, and it was a very enjoyable experience. And obviously, you know, he cast a lot of the people who he regularly works with. But, um, you know, he was very inclusive in the process. You know, I, it was it was a good thing to have worked on. So um, I enjoyed that too. Does that happen often where you're casting for a movie essentially that you're never, that you're not sure is ever going to get made? Yes, it does. It's called being in development. Um, Mm. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. So, um, you know, particularly if it's a first time director or it's a low budget thing, or I don't know, there's, Again, but this is where the commercial aspect of it all comes in, is that so many producers and their financiers now demand a known name before they will give you the finance. And uh, that's, you know, just a a part of the process that we have to deal with. Um, But it is frustrating, and I hate being kind of held to ransom for that and having to find somebody. And the thing is, is that, Actors who are well-known and who bring finance to the film know their worth, and so they're not going to be bought for nothing. And also, there's the same names on these lists that go round and round and round and round and round. And so, again, it's very difficult to squeeze somebody new in. So it's uh, you don't always end up with the person who's the writers for the part, simply on the constraints of the finance of the films who um, you know lots of films that i've worked on have never come to fruition trent should i ask the final do you have anything else you want to ask question (laughs) this is our famous big kahuna final question (laughs) yeah no uh it's uh don't get too stressed it's just um what was the last great thing you watched oh well, I can tell you because I just watched it about two days ago. It was the most fantastic film, which was on the Oscar nominations for the international film. And it was called mm-hmm. The Man Who Sold His Skin. And it was the Tunisian mm-hmm. entry. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And in fact, um, it should have won, in my opinion. Uh, again, I think that people were swayed by the fact that Mads Mikkelsen was in another round. And he's the one that everybody's heard of. Most of the other films, there were not known names in. And so I feel that that was what kind of drew everybody to watching that film. But I think, um, in fact, this was my second viewing of it because I voted for it for the best Oscar. And uh, I think it's extraordinary in many, many ways. The concept of it, the cinematography, the cast, the locations, the I really, really thought it was a brilliant piece of work. So I thoroughly recommend it. So uh, does that mean you're a member of the voting body for the yeah. Academy Awards? Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, how do you become a member of that of that group? Um, you're normally invited, or now that I am a member, I can recommend another person each year. You can nominate somebody they don't always get in um but they have been sort of building up the casting um numbers um and obviously that's the one big thing that we're all desperate to hear is that whether casting will ever receive an oscar for itself because 
it doesn't make any sense that every other head of department gets one, but we don't. And uh, mm-hmm. we've campaigned long and hard for it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we will get there one day, but I don't know when. But we, you know, I think certainly in the UK, because we have a casting guild, it's not a um, a union as such because we aren't allowed to have them particularly anymore. But um, we all got together and gave ourselves our own award and there was quite a lot of press about it. And on the strength of that, BAFTA, our British Film and Television Academy, finally decided to give a casting award. So we're hoping that that might in some way influence the Oscar board. Turn the tide. Mm. And also the head of the Oscar thing at the moment is indeed a casting director called David Rubin. So maybe, maybe, but he feels that, you know, he can't push it too hard because it will just look like that's the only reason he wanted to do it. And also an American casting director told me the other day, rather shockingly, that if you once put forward an idea to the Academy and they reject it, you can never ask again. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, we should find out and bide our time politically. It's it's essentially the no double jeopardy of the of the Constitution. Mm. Yeah, no, you you're totally right that every other department head has a category, and you don't, and it's messed up. Yeah, you know, it's like, come on, every every other person has overtaken us, and you know, casting is such an essential part of any film, and is a major major contribution to the whole feel, look, and success of it. And it just seems madness that. It's not recognized, you know, it's not for the thing itself, but just for the recognition of the job. Because still, after all these years, nobody ever really knows what we do. And uh, Mm -hmm. um, it's all kind of a bit of a mystery. And, um, you know, the more we can demystify it, the better. I just have a a quick final, final question. Uh, Like if you if someone does an audition and you're like, they're pretty good will you and you're considering them for a, a serious lead role will you go out of your way to like watch all of their past work and do a do a, do a Mads Mikkelsen marathon or whatever it may be or, or do you yeah, just go on what you what you've seen going in yeah and that's part of you know our job is to if you're going to put somebody forward you need to know what you're talking about and uh you know you have to have done your research and um you know, I I have to say I I rarely cast the same person twice, which means I have to watch a hell of a lot of stuff and be aware. You know, particularly in film now, you have to be aware of who people are everywhere. You can't just be aware of your own territory. You have to kind of you know be up to date with things all over the place, which it makes it very very hard because there's such a lot of content now that I feel kind of slightly overwhelmed by it now. But, um, you know, thankfully I'm coming to the end of my career, so it's not such a task. But for anybody new setting out, it's certainly um, it's a big job, and if you're going to take it seriously and do it well. Well, I think we can segue into our ending. Um, I think we, we, we can all agree on the note of we need to get casting directors their Oscars because if anyone deserves it, it's our guest, uh, <laughs> Williams. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. She's worked on such films as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and American Werewolf in London, Henry V, and our film for today, uh, Martin Campbell's Casino Royale. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.
I'll bring us back in because I'm pretty sure you took us out last time. Fine! Wow. Partha, we're being honest. You keep treating me this way. Um, You'll do fucking what? No, it's a good point. I won't do it. I'll just. Yeah, that's I'll, what I'll, I thought. I'll keep, that's what I thought. I'll keep coming to the recording sessions, maybe 10 minutes late, maybe 15 minutes late, and, you know, just trying my best. That's 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 what I want to hear. Anyways. Wow. What a. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? No, I was just. You said wow. I was saying wow, too. I was, oh, like, okay. we're impressed by the interview. Right? Yes, that's what I was trying to do. All right, try it again. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. What a crazy interview, right, Parth? Yes, and that's the second time we did the wow, whoa intro uh, back into, you know, our little part of this episode. All right, Parth, how about you quit putzing around and um, thank Debbie McWilliams again for coming on our program. That was very nice. Um, yes her time is very valuable she she was very very gracious it was very nice of her to come she could have not came she yeah for a long time i thought she wouldn't parth name three things debbie mcwilliams could have done with her time instead of being nice enough to come on her show she could have done i'm going to tell you three things she could have done and three things she still can do after having done this interview an hour of community service no 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 trats please what she can do is listen to all of our previous episodes, right? With mm-hmm. all of that time. Then the other thing she could have done, she could have gone on to Apple Podcasts. She could have been like, hey, I'm going to write a review. I'm going to give it a five-star review to Craft Services, my favorite podcast, my favorite film podcast. And then the third thing she could have done, right, which she still can do, is to go on all of our social media and just be like, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow your Instagram. I'm going to follow your Twitter. I'm going to follow you on Spotify. Now, Parth, do you have a message for... The one person who thought it was a good idea to give us a one-star review on Apple Podcasts. Do you just want to call them out? You're the reason I lose sleep at night. Yeah. Um, whoever you are, since you were too much of a coward to step up um, or steal our laptops or do anything that it would actually stop the show from being produced, you just keep talking from uh, your dark corner of the internet. And Parth and I are going to find out who you are and come to your house. You'll find out. What hap- You'll see what happens. Yeah, when we're outside your house um, with weapons of mass destruction. All right, enough pill- of that. Pillage uh, your village. Trent, next week, the viewers, the listeners, they can look forward to what do we do with Casino Royale after we do an interview? Typically, we'll discuss it, whether, oh, okay. whether it be you and I or you and I, including a special guest. And we'll see. Maybe there will be a guest. Maybe there won't be. Maybe this episode is being recorded three weeks before this episode actually gets released. Maybe we don't have that firm of an understanding of our upcoming schedule, and we can't really commit to either of these, so we're making it seem purposely ambiguous. I don't know. These are all options. Anyways, uh, our new slate is out at this point. Is it? Yeah. Well, I guess I guess you can just tell the people what's on yeah. it then. Yes, after our discussion... We're going to be talking with uh, John Lee, assistant editor for Interstellar, among all of the Nolan movies post Batman Begins. Yeah, he said he like had his way with Inception in the editing room for like four months. So, yeah. And then after that, and after we discuss Interstellar, we have big news. We have our huge news, Here large quantities of news. Yep. And it's uh, it's that we have our first writer-director 
writer-director Evan Morgan talked with us to talk with us. Yeah, thank you. To talk with us about his film, The Kid Detective, starring Adam Brody. Yeah, it was um, really nice. I, yes. I enjoyed myself. As did I. I'm I'm very excited for all the all these things among a few other special things we're planning, you know? You that that you don't need to know about for to, un, until until it comes out cuz we're booked up till September 5th and what comes after that? You don't need to know. Even I don't know. Yeah, and and, P- and Parth is the more informed co-host of the two of us and if he doesn't know, then most certainly I don't know. So <laughs> If another person shows up in my house and asks me what's on the upcoming podcast schedule, I'm going to have no choice but to shoo you away. Shoo or shoot? Shoo. I don't like to oh, do that okay. to my fans. Parth, Parth. I would never shoot a fan. I'd shoot an enemy. I'd shoot... Shoot someone that gives you a one-star review on Apple Podcasts? Yeah, I would do unspeakable things to whatever bozo out there thought it was a good idea to give us a one-star review. But a fan? I would, at worst, tell them to get the fuck off my property. Mm-hmm. And to for them to come back at a time that was more convenient for my autographing schedule, which is pretty booked up until September fifth. All right, I think it's we've done enough shenanigans and hooligans. I mean, we are the hooligans doing shenanigans. But well, now that your sentence structure is falling apart, how about you just you know you fall into an Austin Powers impression and we all get out of here, okay? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think we. You know, we we just gotta get to the. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Hey, Peter. Hey, Peter. <laughs>